Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. You're listening to a recording from The Vaults, a pre-show talk given by Duff Murphy, host of KUSC's The Opera Show on The Pearl Fishers. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I'm um, grateful to, to the Los Angeles Opera League for inviting me to, uh, to speak this evening about Georges Bizet's Pearl Fishers, Les Pêcheurs de Perles. Uh, it's one of those uh, wonderful operas that uh, I don't want to say has remained hidden, but it hasn't been performed here at the Music Center for several decades. As a matter of fact, the last performance that I recall it being performed in town, and I, the, I'm not keeping a, a chronology, but was in the 1980s, the early 1980s, when the New York City Opera used to come to town. And the New York City had a performance or a production of the Pearl Fishers in its uh, repertoire uh, at that time. And the conductor was a young conductor from Northern California, the Oakland Symphony, named Calvin Simmons, who unfortunately died um, a very young age. So a recollection of that particular performance still resonates in this hall. Did any, did any of you see that, that particular production back, I think it was about 1980 or 81, 82? No, you didn't. Um, so it's a work that while uh, Bizet lived to the age of 36, we all know him for Carmen and a little bit other, some other music as well. And you've probably heard of the Pearl Fishers because it contains probably one of the most famous duets, so much so that it's just known as the Pearl Fishers duet. And it's a tenor and a baritone. And while it is probably the most popular piece of music from this score, uh, it's not the only piece of music in the score, and it happens early enough in the opera that you have to pay attention to what's going on and how the opera unfolds. But a couple of anecdotes uh, that my wife pulled out just uh, before we came, came over, before I came over, and she said, let everyone know that Bizet named one of his dogs after the character in, in the opera. Uh, his name was Zorga, that was his dog. They played the, the Pearl Fishers duet at, at Bizet's funeral, but a couple of things happened. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, who we all know is the great critic as well as the playwright uh, and raconteur, um, thought that this was a totally unworthy opera. And Friedrich Nietzsche, who felt that Carmen was the uh, antidote to Wagnerian opera, uh, left after the first act in the performance that he saw of the Pearl Fishers. And to add sort of insult to indignity, as it were, when the Metropolitan Opera premiered this work in its 1895-1896 season, it only played the first two acts, leaving the third act off and putting another opera on at the end of it. So I think that gives you an idea as to how Bizet's work was treated. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it was treated, it has been mistreated, at least in its early life, um, but that, that does happen. And it happened probably because the work, uh, when it was first performed in 1863, Bizet was only 24 years old. You'll read somewhere that he was 25 years old, but he hadn't yet celebrated his 25th birthday. That was a month away. So he was only 24 when the opera saw its first performance. And it only had 18 performances at the Théâtre Lyrique in Paris, Paris uh, over a two-month period. 
and then it was to disappear from the opera stage for the next 20 years. Bizet never saw the work again. And putting together an opera takes a lot of time and energy, and they have to both write the score. They have to write the piano score, then they have to write the orchestral score. And if the work hasn't been published, each of those parts has to be written out for each section of the orchestra and has to be written out for each singer and has to be collated so that the conductor knows what the conductor is doing in leading each of those various groups. So when it came to the publishing of the Pearl Fishers, Bizet was very conscious of this and actually had to work out with one of the great French publishing companies, Choudon, the, the opportunity to have it published, but it wasn't published during Bizet's lifetime. So putting the work together, pulling this these various parts together after 20 years and after the death of the composer, much of the score had been dissipated. And so it was put together by various different people when it was finally revived 20 years later. Historically, what's interesting is while it was revived in Paris 20 years later, it actually had a fairly decent success in Italy, translated into Italian. So Bizet's French opera, translated into Italian, saw better results than it was to receive in Paris and France during the early decades of its, of its life. Again, Bizet was 24 years old. He was a bit of a musical prodigy. At the age of nine, his father was a music teacher, uh, a voice teacher. At the age of nine, he was admitted into the, the Paris Music Conservatoire, and one of the other students there was Camille Saint-Saëns, and they became pretty decent friends. Bizet became a very fine pianist. In fact, Sasson actually believed that Bizet, had he not chosen to become a composer, could have made a career as a pianist. But Sasson also recognized, as young composers, that it's very difficult, it was at the time, as it is today, for young composers to get their works performed. So even though they may toil over the creation of new works, and while each of them may in their own way be very talented and have a certain ideas to the presentation of music and its composition, getting it performed was something altogether different. And it was almost impossible for a young composer to have his operas performed at any time in Paris. So what happened at about this time, about 1860, 1862, is a benefactor approached one of the opera directors, a fellow by the name of Carvalho, who ran an opera company at the Paris uh, Lyrique, the Théâtre Lyrique. And he gave 100,000 francs to the Théâtre Lyrique and Mr. Carvalho to allow them or that company to produce operas by young French composers who had won the Prix de Rome, or the Prize of Rome. That was an award given to the finest student at the Paris Conservatoire, and Bizet had won that in 1855. So he was able to go to Rome and study music in Rome to, in essence, give himself a more worldly perspective. And when he, Bizet, returned to Paris, he was uh, engaged by Carvalho at the Théâtre Lyrique to write an opera, and the opera was Les Pêcheurs de Perles, the Pearl Fishers. 
but let me just go back one other step, which I think it's kind of interesting. At the young age of about 17, Bizet wrote his Symphony in C. Now, it was really, it was certainly well regarded, and it is magnificently regarded today, but Bizet did not feel himself a man of just symphonic music. Camille Saint-Saëns says, well, we might not be able to get our theater pieces performed, but, but Georges, we can certainly have our symphonic works performed. And Bizet's reply was, I'm a man of the theater. If I don't have the theater to write for, I can write and create nothing. Now, given that, but recognizing that Saint-Saëns was his good friend and had heard some of his music, in a certain sense, Saint-Saëns was right. Bizet's music, his symphonic music, was exquisite, as we well know in his Symphony in C. piece that was actually performed by the New York Philharmonic conducted by Leonard Bernstein a beautiful piece of symphonic music written in the mid 19th century by the very young Georges Bizet so Camille Saint-Saëns certainly knew what he was talking about but again it was not something that Bizet was interested in. He wanted something to create, and create for the theater he did. Now with respect to Les Pechaux de Perles, it was originally set in Mexico not in Ceylon, which is today Sri Lanka. And just before the opera was to be performed, they changed the location, and they changed the name. It was going to be called Leila, which is the virginal priestess who enchants in, in songs to protect and ward off evil spirits and protect the pearl fishers. But um, they felt that because there were other operas that had virginal priestesses, goddesses, who protected their people, such as Norma. And they felt that naming it Leila would, or Leila, would, uh, would somehow give something a little bit um, common about the work. So they changed it to the Pearl Fishers and changed the location. They changed it to Ceylon. This is an, an Eastern location, a certain sense of, of Orientalism about it, which intrigued, in some, one critic says it intrigued the French more than it did the English. The English wrote operas and stories about their home country, whereas the French were much more uh, international and found exotic places to write operas about. So Bizet wanted to try to capture the essence of that music. And in, in the operatic score for the Pearl Fishers, you'll hear uh, cymbals and tambourines. These are supposed to mimic the sound of Eastern music. And you'll also hear woodwinds, such as the oboe and the clarinet, which are used to try to emulate the, um, 
the mysticism and the exoticism of the wind instruments of the East. But what's interesting is that in the, the symphony in C that Bizet wrote some years earlier at the age of 17, he gives us an idea of how he knows how to exploit beautifully the sound of wind instruments to create, in a sense, an exotic sound. Now you're not going to hear any music from the symphony in C in the score for the Pearl Fishers, but it gives you an idea of the true genius of Bizet to capture the essence, not only the beauty of sound, but to create with instruments certain impressions and certain textures. And this texture that we just heard in that movement or that portion of the second movement of the symphony in C certainly did influence uh, to my mind, the music that we hear in the Pearl Fishers. Now, one of the things that I love about Bizet is that as a, as a young student, he studied with Charles Gounod, who wrote Faust and Romeo et Juliette, and he also um, was in Paris at the time that Jacques Offenbach had great success with operettas, the musical theater, the fun stuff about opera, the craziness that, that gentlemen would take their mistresses to and families would go on Sunday afternoon to take their families. Jacques Offenbach had a competition to young Parisian and young French composers that he wanted them to write a one-act operetta and they would make an award to the winner of that. And Bizet actually wrote an opera, an operetta entitled Le Docteur Miracle, otherwise known as The Doctor Miracle. And this is a story about a young man who's in love with a young woman, and the young woman's parents don't want the young man to have an affair with their daughter. So the daughter and, and, and this young man try to come up with a story or a way in order to inculcate the young man into the life of the family. And he becomes the cook in the household. And he cooks an omelet. And they eat the omelet. And then he says at the end of it, or after they've eaten the omelet, that it's poisonous. So then the family, the parents, leave the house, rush out to try to go to a doctor. And the daughter says, I know a doctor who can help you. And it just happens to be the young man disguised now as a doctor. And he says, I will only give you the, the remedy if you allow your daughter to marry the young man. All right, so that's, that's the story. But Bizet's opera, Operetta won. And it had a wonderful quartet entitled the Omelette Quartet. <laughs> and until this morning, I'd never heard it. Oh, <laughs> 
The young man is the tenor. So you get a style of Offenbach in that. The operetta, The Doctor Miracle, an operetta written by the 19-year-old Georges Bizet. Now that was actually used to allow him, the judges to confer upon him, the Prix de Rome or the Prize of Rome, which allowed him to then go study for three years in Rome, as I mentioned. So on returning from Rome, and Carvalho, this follow Carvalho who ran the Théâtre Lyrique, commissioned Bizet to write this opera. And really, they had a libretto. He said, here, here's the libretto. It's by these two fellows, Michel Carré and Eugene Corman, otherwise known as uh, Pierre-Étienne Piestre, who was going by a nom de plume, who had written some 200 stage pieces. Well, these two fellows, Carré and Corman, wrote this libretto, which they gave then to Bizet to write his, his opera. And they thought that the libretto was very poor. As a matter of fact, after hearing Bizet's music, both of them said, gee, had we known the music was being so good, we wouldn't have given him such garbage. Or as they said, they wouldn't have given him such a white elephant. Uh, notwithstanding that, uh, Bizet took, these, took this work and created his, his opera. Now, Carvalho has a rather, uh, let's just say, sullied reputation. Uh, in the sense that he was very charming at any particular moment. He could charm anyone at any time. But when it came to putting on a production, he put his personal imprint on anything. Now, this wasn't unusual in the Paris opera scene at the time. There were two or three competing theaters. The most important was the, was the um, Opéra Comique. It sounds like comic opera, but the Opéra Comique was for the old-timers. Now, the old-timers, this, this company would produce all of the old operas, the ones that were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they would never produce anything new. And as a matter of fact, the Opera Comique was probably best known for having boxes where people would go and carry on and chat all night, and it was where people, young people, actually proposed for marriages. So they didn't want to be distracted by some new opera. So this is important. Um, so Carvalho created the, the Théâtre Lyrique, 
where young composers could have their works performed, but yet there were certain codes and strictures that had to be that had to be followed, both in terms of taking the libretto from the artist, composing the music, presenting the work, having the right singers, having the right directors, having the audience respond in a certain way, and the critics respond in a certain way. So, and there was also governmental interference. So there was a governmental office that over, over, was an oversight to opera being performed. So there were all of these various levels of, of, of oversight interference in, any, in getting any opera on stage. Bizet was lucky. In September of 1863, they presented the Pearl Fishers and it ran for 18 performances. It didn't make any money. As a matter of fact, the month started off with the presentation of Mozart's La Noce de Figaro, which did do well, and what followed Bizet's uh, the Pearl Fishers was Les Troyens of Hector Berlioz, which also did well. But in the middle, we have this opera, The Pearl Fishers of Georges Bizet. 18 performances was good, but it didn't make any money. But the critics were unbelievably harsh. And they were harsh because they didn't feel that the composer um, uh, acted correctly. So it wasn't so much about the music. As Bizet said, if you strip away all of the noise of what the critics had to say about me, their, their comments about the music, for the most part, wasn't particularly bad. They didn't like the fact that a young 24-year-old fellow at the end of the opera came on stage and took a bow. And they just excoriated him for that, that that was a total breach of etiquette. Someone said not only was that a breach of etiquette, but he was wearing an old gray overcoat, which made him look uh, really like a tattered young man. And they, they totally went after him in just a very vicious way. One critic was to write, and this was in Le Figaro, the, uh, the, the newspaper, the French Parisian newspaper, there were neither fishermen in the libretto nor pearls in the music. The Pearl Fishers betray on every page, along with the talent of the composer, the bias of a school to which he belongs, that of Richard Wagner. So they, uh, they accused poor Georges Bizet of being influenced by Richard Wagner. Well, not, that wasn't the only thing. Another newspaper said that the opera was shocking and violent in effects, worthy of the new Italian school. So they accused him of being influenced by Verdi, now, I don't know if you've heard Wagner and Verdi, um, but I don't hear too much similarity between those two. Oh, as one critic said, there is much shrieking in the score of Les Percheurs de Perle. And as folks, as you listen to the, to the performance tonight, you'll hear no shrieking. So one has to wonder what was going on. And it was the convention. The, the critics said, we have not only the duty to criticize music, but the man and his morals. So there's a 24-year-old young man writing an opera, seeing it performed for the first time, and they just went after him. Everyone went after him, except the composer, uh, the composer Hector Berlioz, who felt that this was a wonderful opera. Berlioz wrote of the score, the score of the opera had a real success. It includes a considerable number of beautiful, expressive pieces full of fire and rich coloring. And I think time will tell us, and your performance this evening will tell us, that certainly Hector Berlioz knew what he was writing about compared to the French Parisian uh, critics at the time. So the story of the opera, it, is, it does have its challenges. 
and I'll stay right up front that the challenges have to do really with the ending of the opera. When the, when the librettists got to the end, they didn't quite know how to end the score, the story. Uh, they didn't know what to do and how to wrap it up. So there's certain conventions that have been brought into the story to sort of move the story along that really don't seem to fit. Uh, but up until that point, it's really quite beautiful. It's a quite beautiful score uh, that is very atmospheric, as we might call it today, and creates a sense of mysticism and exoticism that certainly Bizet had in mind. Now, we all know the story, or we all know the opera Carmen and its music. Uh, the radio station that I work with plays its music sometimes so often that uh, one of my colleagues once says, it's Friday, Carmen's showing up for the paycheck. I always thought that was very funny. Well, Leila, Nadir, and Zurga aren't showing up for any paycheck, but uh, they certainly have some beautiful, uh, beautiful sound. But you will hear in the score and in the story a sense of how Carmen relates, some, some, of, the, some of the interaction and some of the music of Carmen relates back to the Pearl Fishers. Now, one critic says you really can't compare Carmen to any other opera. And it's not fair to compare the Pearl Fishers to Carmen's, to, to Bizet's unbelievably successful work, uh, Carmen. But I feel that there are moments that give us a prelude or a sense, a hint of what, what influenced or where Bizet's mind was in, in creating Carmen. But let's begin with the story. The story takes place in Ceylon, in antiquity, and it's a story of a group of fishermen uh, fish for pearls, which are essentially a commodity of value. And as the opera starts, uh, they're going to select a leader, a king. And they select a king, his name is Zurga. And Zurga says, I will accept this responsibility, but only if you give me uh, absolute authority and obey me at no doubt and no question. Now, there is no formal, in a sense, overture as we have in Carmen, but there is a prelude. And the music in the prelude, while it's not representative of what we might call a leading motif of Wagner or leitmotif, it does give us a sense of, of the love theme or the theme of Leila, who is a virgin priestess who comes to, as I said, chant. She's on a, isolated on a cliff overlooking the town and their, their activity. But Bizet creates a wonderful atmosphere in a very short prelude.
So in this opera, after we hear this short prelude, we're right in the middle of the village. Now it's at water's edge and we meet the chorus of fishermen and they're singing about uh, their work as a fisherman and dance is very important, important in French opera. The movement of, of a chorus is, is a very critical aspect. In the opera Carmen, the chorus actually almost called a strike because Bizet wanted them to actually act and move from one side to another. In the Pearl Fishers, the chorus in most productions since the first part of the 20th century incorporate movement and dance in the choral scenes. And I'll just give you one other uh, anecdote, is when the opera was presented at the Metropolitan Opera in 1916-17, Enrico Caruso was the tenor singing Nadir. What's interesting is that while the critics uh, were, were complimentary of Caruso, although they felt that his body has maybe morphed a little bit into something more middle-aged than they'd like, uh, they felt that the choral scenes were what actually carried the opera. So while I don't have a lot of choral scenes, I have a, several that we'll hear, the chorus is a very critical part and has some of the most, um, some of the most intricate uh, and dramatic music. Here we meet them at Water's Edge. And again, keeping in mind, I don't want to go back and forth between Carmen, but in Carmen, it also starts with a chorus. <laughs> So the question then becomes, as I mentioned, they want to select a leader for this season of hunting, hunting for pearls or diving for pearls. So Zurga comes and says, you, you must select a leader, and they, you must select someone who's brave and valiant. And they, they, they say to Zurga, we want you to be our leader, and he says, so long, in essence, as you give me absolute authority. another man appears, and it happens to be Nadir. Nadir is a hunter, so depending on the production, he will either be coming out of a forest 
where he has been hunting a tiger or he comes up in a boat on the sea. It doesn't really make much difference, uh, but he is a hunter and he will sing about hunting, uh, but he recognizes Zorga, Zorga recognizes him, and these two are very close, dear friends. They, they treat themselves like brothers. Earlier in their lives, they had both been in a situation where they saw a young goddess of a woman, and they both fell for her. And they realized that this was going to cause some conflict. So they decided that to preserve their friendship and really the love they have for each other, that they would forswear not to pursue this woman. And so Bizet does capture in what we know as the Pearl Fisher's duet, their recollection of meeting the goddess Layla, or the very beautiful priestess Layla, and their vows to not um, approach her and to maintain their friendship. All right. And Bizet writes this exquisite duet. But it's a farce. Nadir had actually approached Layla, Layla beforehand and had a very brief affair with her. And some believe that within the context of the story, Nadir just happens to be at this village because he expects Layla to be there as the priestess who will protect the fishermen. So that is now, you know that, you may not have known that in the story, but you'll hear in this duet, the two men recounting their their meeting of a young woman at the back of a holy temple, a woman appears. I can still see her, says Zorga, a goddess. We glimpse her eyes, a vision, a dream, a goddess so beautiful. The Pearl Fishers duet with UC Bierling and Robert Merrill. <laughs> So that theme is very popular. In fact, after, the, uh, after Bizet died and productions were put on, certain productions would actually repeat that aria or a good portion of the aria. And one critic actually said, that totally ruins the opera because it's heard too frequently. As a matter of fact, that theme in one way or another appears eight different times in the opera. So to actually add a different verse or a second verse of that same, same music, though absolutely beautiful, exquisite, has a tendency to make it sound hackneyed as the opera unfolds. And Bizet didn't write it that way. 
So you hear that theme, and when you hear the theme, it brings to mind as Wagner's leitmotifs does. And again, it, they hadn't been invented at that time, and Bizet was being accused of sounding like Wagner, but it gives a sense of us both the friendship that these two men have for one another, their brotherhood, as well as a reference to the priestess Leila. So she does arrive. She's beautiful and wise. She's veiled. No one is allowed to see her or, or touch her or approach her. She is to pray and sing daily to perfect, protect the fishermen from evil spirits. She arrives to this, and we hear this music. We hear a very bit of this theme when she arrives. And the reason is that, is that when Zorga administers the oath to her to remain pure to her vows and to pray day and night, to drive away the, the evil spirits, to live without contact, contact with people, she will die if she disobeys that. There's a moment where she hesitates. And Zorga says, what's that? And she hesitates because she has seen Nadir in the group. And so her hesitation is picked up both by the sense of this music, this theme that we hear very briefly on her approach, which means this is the woman that these two men had once both been in love with. She accepts, she accepts the, um, the vow, that even if she has to die, and a chorus sings a prayer that Brahma protect her and protect them. Nadir is then left alone. Everyone leaves, he's left alone, and he sings one of the most exquisite tenor, tenor, French tenor arias composed in the 19th century or at any time. It's the romance. And this is his reminiscence of Leila. Uh, he's drawn to her by her song, and he begins the aria, Je crois entendre encore, hidden among the palms, I could hear her voice as sweet and tender as a dove. Enchanted night, bewitching memory, mad intoxication. That was tenor Nikolai Geda, a Swedish-Russian tenor who could sing in nine different languages. 
No sooner is that reminiscent of Layla done than he leaves, and we're in the temple now where the priest Norabad instructs Layla where she is to on this cliff and in this temple sing and pray, and again asking her to reinforce her vows. She will be guarded and protected at night. As he leaves, uh, Nadir uh, proclaim, proclaims his love from afar, but Layla hears this, and as the first act comes to a close, they sing in unison. And while it's not a love duet per se, it is unison singing, and you recognize that their, that their relationship is going to evolve a little bit later. In the second act, which is in this essence the continuation of the same day, Norabad is again, uh, after the chorus, where the chorus sings of the stars and waves, they're returning home after an evening's hunt. Layla's in the temple, Norabad approaches her and tells her that she would be able to sleep there, that she, she will, will be guarded, reminds her of her vows. Now remember, these are vows not to have contact with anyone on punishment of death. Um, Layla sings an aria where she recalls the beauty and feelings of her own as it relates to her relationship or her previous uh, interaction and affair with Nadir. It's a quite exquisite aria and will be beautifully sung this evening. Here is a French soprano uh, singing this, this aria, Leila, portion of Leila's aria in the temple. She falls asleep. Nadir comes and approaches her and actually comes into the temple. She says, go away. You can't be here. It, it might mean you'll die. Uh, he says, no, I have to be here. I, I'm absolutely in love with you, and I came here to be with you. Um, Layla sings again of him leaving, but they embrace, and they sing an exquisite duet that in essence gives us a sense of foreshadowing. In this music, it's not Carmen and Don Jose, but it's more Don Jose and Micaela. This is a love between Nadir and Leila that has, in many ways, uh, a bit of a, a, casts a bit of a shadow 10 years later in Carmen, but in its own right, has its own dramatic sense and wonderful drama. This is their love duet.
it was Placido Domingo and Ruth Ann Swenson. So I know we're running short of time, so the story goes, they get discovered, then they're condemned to death by Zurga, but the crowd, he recognizes, he sees Layla, they take her veil away, and he becomes insanely jealous and condemns them to death. Since the chorus, since the fishermen are to obey him absolutely, uh, that death sentence stands. In the third act, Zurga is, is contrite and feels guilty to have, having condemned his best friend to death. Uh, Layla shows up and says, Zorga, please forgive Nadir. She doesn't know that Zorga loves her. So we have this duet between Zorga, who is angry and becomes more jealous and agitated, and we have Layla becoming more agitated and finding him very much evil, cruel, a monster, because she, he won't forgive Nadir. And so at this moment, at the moment where we think there's going to be uh, a reconciliation, Zorga reinforces the death sentence. But there's other story that I didn't tell you, which is at one point, and this is where there's this sort of complication. Early in, the, in her life as a young girl, Layla protected a fugitive from a, a, an approaching posse. She hid him and the posse disappeared and his life was saved. That individual gave her a, a, a pearl necklace. And she takes the necklace off and gives it to her escort and says, give this to my mother. Zorga recognizes the necklace as he was the one that was protected by Layla. So when it comes time for the execution of Layla and Nadir, and this is where the opera takes sort of a deus ex machina, they didn't know how to end it. And so Carvalho, the director, said, well, just light a fire. In essence saying, just throw the libretto into the fire because we don't know what you're doing. So they said, all right, Zorga will just set the town on fire. And so when all of the fishermen go to try to save, put the fire out and save their belongings, Zorga says to Nadir and Leila, leave, run. And as they leave, they leave to the music of the pearl fishers, the brotherhood duet, which is the final moment uh, of the opera. So let's hear just that. So we'll give the last word to Georges Bizet, who said, Les Pêcheurs is very much discussed, very much discussed, attacked, defended. A failure in short, honorable and brilliant, if I may use the expression, but nevertheless, a failure. Well, time has told us that it's not. Enjoy the opera this evening, friends. Thank you. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. 
Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.